You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess our great need for your mercy. We are undeserving, and yet you are so abundantly good. And that goodness that you show to us in Jesus flows directly from who you are. Your character as a God who is faithful and good and holy and just and full of mercy. As we come to the word, as we open Exodus this morning, I pray that our eyes are given a fresh fresh picture of who you are and what you have done. And that would stir our hearts to worship you. We love you. We thank you for loving us tangibly so well in Christ Jesus. Encourage our hearts now as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. I just want to say officially welcome to sweater weather. Uh, Some of you will argue with me and be like, I'm wearing shorts till December and that is fine. You're welcome to do that. I don't know what happened. Maybe I hit 40 uh, a couple years ago and I just, I was like, sweaters are good. And, um, I tend to swap out, uh, I put like all my shorts in a bucket for the winter and then I put the, take out the sweaters and, or put the shorts, uh, you know, out in the summer and put the sweaters away. And so I actually got to pull the sweaters out this week and I realized I have a lot of cardigans just like this, like button down Mr. Rogers style. So over the next, like, I think I could wear a different sweater till the end of the year on Sundays. And I didn't know that until I took them out yesterday and I felt both uh, joy and shame at that reality. So uh, there you go. You get a little glimpse into Jake being an old man uh, wearing Mr. Rogers sweaters. Uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. We're glad you're here. Um, my name is Jake. Uh, if you don't know me, I serve as a lead pastor here at River City, and it's a joy for me to open God's Word with you today. Um, we're doing, we're kind of in the middle of a 10,000 foot view of the book of Exodus uh, this fall. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and turn to Exodus chapter 14. If you need a Bible, uh, some folks from our strike team are coming around and can get you a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. Um, I hope that you're learning and enjoying this journey through Exodus. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, if you're interested, uh, our, our weekly update that goes out usually Tuesday uh, morning or so with just announcements and stuff for the week also includes in it uh, this little like bookmark. Thing, so you can read ahead for the passages that we'll be looking at each week um, here through the end of November. Um, that's still available, so you can read ahead, because we're not able to read every verse every Sunday. Um, one of the things that's standing out to me as I'm studying Exodus, as we're studying Exodus, is not just that this is an interesting book of history, but God is revealing himself. He's telling his people and the people of the world, I am God. And he's showing his people and the people of the world that he's God by his powerful works. And so as, as I've said before, as we're reading Exodus, if I can encourage you, as you're reading on your own even, to asking this question, what is Exodus telling us about who God is? What is Exodus telling us about what it means to be God's people? And where do we see at, in our study this arc, this shape of God's work of redemption? It's just kind of that overall 
take home for all of us as we're working through Exodus. Today we're looking at Exodus 14, verse 1 through 15, verse 21. It's a much smaller section this week than last week. Although, as I told the first service, there's no guarantee that the message is any shorter, just that the section we're studying is smaller. That joke went about the same at 9 a.m. too. Today we're going to read all the way from God's parting of the Red Sea, is where we'll kind of start. God leading his people out, parting the Red Sea so that his people can walk across on dry land. And on the back end of our passage, a song of praise, of worship. And that's where I think our theme for today comes. The theme for the series, God revealing himself in Exodus saying, I am your God. And then in these different ways, explaining, I am your God who rescues, who redeems. Today, it's this, I am your God who calls you to worship. And the question I'd like to ask as we're looking at our passage is this, why? Why worship God? For what reasons should God be worshipped? You and I are told things all the time. From the time we are little kids, and little kids in the room, you, you know this, right? Your parents tell you something. And the regular question of the information you've been given or the instructions you've been given is, why? Why should I wear pants today, Dad? Well, it's cold out. Well, why is it cold out? Well, it's fall and the seasons change. Well, why does that happen? Just put pants on right? We all ask why. Could be, why is the sky blue? Or why do I have to eat this green thing you put on my plate today? We ask why. And not just as children, we can say that's a reasonable question, right? It's not just kids. If a friend hands you a a cup and says, here, drink this, and you don't know what's in it, you might ask why. That'd be one question. Uh, what, what, what is this? You're going to ask why, right? Trust is a key piece of this puzzle. Do I trust that what you're handing to me or what you're telling me is, a, is actually a good thing? Or is there a camera somewhere I don't see? And this is going to go poorly. Maybe you're talking with a coach or your boss and they say, do this thing. Or I'd like you to do this. And you might say, okay, fine, I'll do that. But in the back of your mind, you're going, why should I do this? Right? Or maybe you're talking to a counselor or your community group leader or a pastor who encourages you and says, I think you need to take this step. I think you should consider this. Right? We're given these kinds of instructions and to-dos, if you will, all the time. And here in Exodus, God has already told us his reason for rescuing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He said, I've heard their groaning. I've seen their pain as slaves. I've remembered, I've remembered my covenant that I made to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I'm going to renew that promise to them to be their God. And they're going to be my people. And they're going to have a place to worship me. And God said, I'm going to bring them out so that they would serve and worship me. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He said, this is the Lord speaking, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt. He tells him back in Exodus 3, you shall serve God on this mountain. Over and over again, in the movement away from Egypt, Moses tells Pharaoh, the Lord tells Pharaoh, why are we bringing the people out? So that God's people can come out and can worship me. They can come out and make offerings to me and sacrifices and praise 
the Lord. God is calling them out of slavery so that they can worship Him. So for us, as we're looking through this, we too are invited to worship God. Why? Why worship God? And I think the very simple, basic answer is this. Because God alone is worthy of worship. He's making Himself known and He's saying, Me, I'm the one. I am worthy of worship because of who I am. And now let me show you who I am. So we're going to read a few uh, sections of our text um, to get into these few chapters. Um, we're actually, I want to read the end of chapter 13. If you were with us last week, I skipped a few verses just because we didn't have, really have time to cover them. So we're going to start in 1321 and then read a couple other sections. They'll be up on the screen and I'll point them out to you as we go. If you'd like to read along in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 21. The first section will be through verse, chapter 14, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. <clears throat> Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp and from a, in front of pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Move down to verse 30 of chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Chapter uh, 15, we'll read to verse 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel saying this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And finally, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 15. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, in which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is God's holy and perfect word. God is issuing a call to worship. That's how I see it. Why? Because he alone is worthy of worship. I want that to frame in our conversation today. Because there's two things for which we can worship God that I think we find in this section of text. We worship God for his glory and we worship God for his goodness. We worship God for who he is and we worship God because of what he has done. I want to keep those two things in mind. God's glory. This is just who God is. 
and for His goodness. These are the things God has done. And we will see God's glory and His goodness in a couple of key parts of the story. We'll see Him, His glory and His goodness in His presence with His people. God is present with His people. We'll see it in His power on display, His glory and His goodness. And all of that becomes reason, motivation for praise. So we're going to work through this story, His presence, His power, the praise of God, and point out where we see God's glory and His goodness along the way. I hope that makes sense to you. It makes sense in my head. Hopefully, we can all follow along together. And I hope, for us, it also leads us to deeper worship of our God. That we, too, will, be, uh, will hear and sense that call to worship Jesus for His glory and His goodness. So let's start with what's led the people of Israel to where they are on the edge of the Red Sea. Here's where we see God's glory and his goodness in his presence with them. Israel is escorted out of Egypt by the hand of the Lord. And in chapter 13, verse 17, we read that God leads the people in sort of a roundabout way as they left. They ended up ultimately going south and east out of Egypt and end up camped near the sea. And the Lord knew that the people would turn back to Egypt at the first sign of war from another nation. So even in God's leading of of them out of slavery and bondage, He takes them on this weird detour, in part to keep them hidden from other surrounding nations who would look at them and say, easy target. Here's a bunch of people who are not prepped for war. They're not prepped to defend themselves, but they have a whole lot of livestock and a whole lot of gold, and they're just wandering there, easy pickings. And the Lord, in his kindness, takes them on this kind of bizarre walk through the wilderness to end up where they end up. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. The Lord went before the people as a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night and did not depart from before the people. Now, this is important. I want us to understand this. Exodus is telling us that God himself was present with his people. That God himself was going before them. He wasn't just sending a cloud or sending light at night. He himself made himself manifest in such a way, his presence there, so that his people would know God is with us. And we'll continue to see God's presence in cloud and smoke and fire in the coming chapters when Moses goes up the mountain to get the law and the whole mountain is covered in smoke and lightning and terror. But this is a miraculous and awe-inspiring expression of God being present with his people. Just picture it for a second. We're talking a a whole host, a, a crowd of people, tens if not hundreds of thousands Of men, women, children, livestock. This is not a small group walking through the park. A mass of bodies. And in the front of this giant caravan is a pillar of cloud and of fire that is tall enough and wide enough that at the far edges and in the far back, everybody can see That God is with them. Every single person can see it. There is glory 
and majesty in the way that God is present with his people here. Just a little further down in our text, as Egypt's army is in pursuit, and we'll get to that more in a second. Exodus says, The angel of God who was out before the people and the pillar of cloud now moves behind the people. So what was once leading them, as God was once leading them by being in front of them, as they're camped at the sea, now God himself moves behind his people to be their guard from their enemies. So this picture of lightning or fire lighting up this cloud at night becomes a guard behind them. So God was not only displaying his glory in in being present with his people, but he was displaying a unique goodness in his presence. God personally stood in defense of his people. He protected them himself from their enemies. Don't miss that. God's glory and God's goodness is on display there as he is present with his people. We see it in cloud and fire. But that's not the only place we see God's glory and his goodness here in our text. Let's keep going. We also see God's glory and his goodness in his power on display. And I want to talk specifically about two key areas where we see the miraculous and powerful hand of God at work in two key areas in our text. One, in the heart of Pharaoh, and two, in the Red Sea and what happens as it parts. First, let's talk about the heart of Pharaoh for a second. Until now, we have not addressed the idea that that we've read about all the way back since Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses, Pharaoh will not let Israel go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Way back in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord told Moses, Pharaoh is resistant already to what I'm doing. You have to know that, Moses. And all through the plagues of Egypt, we see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it's hardened or is hard with no source attributed. In fact, that's how it begins. Hebrews, or excuse me, uh, in the Hebrew, the phrase that we read in chapter 7, verse 22, if we were to more accurately or as best accurate, most accurately as we can translate it into English, Pharaoh's heart became hard or was hard. Now, it's not exactly a passive verb. If you'll forgive me for just a second to go into like language nerd land for a little bit. Welcome. We're going to go to language nerd land. The verb here is a stative verb. So it's not passive as if something's happening to him. It's essentially stating what is. Doesn't tell us Pharaoh's hardening his heart or is God hardening Pharaoh's heart at this time. Only that Pharaoh's heart is hard or becoming hard. Now, my own personal take on this is that this is the natural result of the human condition under the effects and fall of sin. That the heart that is still captured and bound up by a sin nature is prone under pressure to harden. That's just what it does. And so, through the first five plagues, I put a little chart up. Hope that you can read that. Through the first five plagues, you either get Pharaoh hardening his own heart Or this unattributed, if you will, this state of verb that uh, his heart was hard or became hard. Through those first five plagues, that's how Pharaoh's heart is described 
to us. And then there's a shift. Plague six, things take a turn. We read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, which then just adds one more component to this kind of back and forth of Pharaoh hardening his own heart and his heart just being hard. Now we have the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And here in our passage today, the reason we're talking about it today is because in our passage, in Exodus 14, verse 4, Yahweh is speaking and he says this, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So, what does this all mean? And this is our slight rabbit trail off of our text to deal with a pretty significant question. How do we deal with the nature of evil? And where do we see God's glory and goodness in the heart of Pharaoh? Well, first, I think this is a brilliant diagnosis of the mysterious nature of humanity and how sin has corrupted the human heart and will. I think this this multi-perspective, if you will, or this multi-source is actually a very helpful way to understand the human heart. If we're honest, half the time we don't understand why we do the things we do or think the things we think. Am I right? We think we do, but half the time we're like, where did that come from? Right? I think this is actually helpful for us. Now, Pharaoh, to this point, I think I'm safe in saying, is one of the most evil people we've met in the Bible. And we, have you read Genesis? There's some stuff that happens there. And yet, Pharaoh and his predecessors have built their kingdom on the backs of, of subjected and uh, enslaved people. Not just the Hebrews. This was kind of par for the course for their history. So Pharaoh's own wickedness is on display as he oppresses others for his own personal gain and glory. Furthermore, when confronted directly by God, by Yahweh himself, Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh's response was to scoff. Who is this God? I don't know your God. Why should I listen to him? And I think all of this points to the wickedness and evil that's just present already in the heart of Pharaoh. He's express, we're seeing expressed in real time the natural state of humanity in its broken and sinful form. And God gives Pharaoh five opportunities to repent. Five, at least, to change course. And this, I believe, is God's goodness and mercy on display. I think we need to take the scriptures as plainly as we can here. That these were legitimate opportunities for Pharaoh to repent. At every stage in that first part of those plagues, when Moses comes in and says, Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. These were legitimate opportunities for Pharaoh to repent. But he resists every single one. And at some point that we can't see, because we cannot see inside the deep parts of the human heart. At some point here, Pharaoh reaches some kind of point of no return. And from that point forward, the Lord simply gives Pharaoh exactly what he's wanted all along. You want to be independent? You want to prove yourself before God? Okay. You can have exactly what you want. God displays his goodness in giving opportunity to repent. Look at the rest of verse 4 of chapter 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. He'll pursue Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, does God get glory when someone repents and turns from their sin and wickedness? Yes, you should say yes to that. That's exactly what happens. God gets tons of glory 
when someone turns and trusts in Him. All of heaven rejoices, Scripture tells us, over one sinner who turns and repents. God gets glory, all right. Angels worship Him when a sinner surrenders their own will and receives the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. All of heaven rejoices, and God gets that praise. There's also a small takeaway here I don't want us to miss. God also gets glory when those who are opposed to Him are shown to be powerless in comparison to His holiness. God also gets glory when evil is punished and when He shows Himself to be superior to all other false gods and false worship. That also brings God glory. And those two glories, if you will, are not at odds. And for us, this becomes a real-life example. One of the big questions of our faith, most people ask, or probably should ask if they don't ask it, how do God's sovereign will and man's will and responsibility work together to accomplish God's purposes? Now, we're not going to cover all of that today because that's, you all don't want to be here all afternoon. But, but let's just take a slice of it. Okay? Is Pharaoh responsible for his own wickedness? Yes. You should say yes to that. Yes, he is. Is God sovereignly working all things with a capital A for his glory? Yes, Yes, you can say yes to that too. These things are not at odds. And because God is not the author of confusion or evil, that in in him is no darkness at all, as 1 John 1 says, that means that as much as God is the ultimate cause over all things, he's not the imminent cause of things like the evil in Pharaoh's heart or my heart or your heart. Those things are on us. And likewise, we can't wave our fists at God in our sin as if it's his fault. We need to own our actions and our motives and our own hearts. That's reality. In talking with my brother Rich, actually, this last week after church, we we talked about this mystery, this challenge of getting our brains around this idea. And and he actually gave me a really helpful illustration that I'm going to share with you. I just want to rightly attribute it. I didn't come up with it. I'm totally stealing it. The will of Pharaoh, or more broadly, if we want to bring it out, the will of all humanity is like one piece of railroad track. We have railroad that runs by right here. Many of you get stopped by it, either to or from church on a Sunday. And it's hard to see here because it disappears over a small hill over there. And I, I mean hill. You know what I mean. And over here it goes around a corner. There are places in North Dakota, because we live on a flat rectangle, where you can stand on railroad tracks and see it all the way to the horizon. Just picture that here for our illustration. The will of humanity is like one piece of track. And if you will, where we stand on the edge of the track, the will of God is kind of like the other. Now, from our perspective, those things seem separate. And they will never touch. But from our perspective, looking down at the horizon line, those two lines meet. Standing on the tracks, we see them as parallel and distinct. But if we could see a little further, they look like they come together. Now, the illustration falls apart because we know that railroad tracks stay parallel because that's the nature of tracks. But if you let me just stretch that illustration just a little bit further and include the train itself. If the train then traveling on tracks are all of God's purposes moving down through the corridors of time, 
that through both God's divine will and through the means of human will and action, God, who owns the railroad, by the way, and the land that it's on and the air that surrounds it, God will always accomplish his purposes and will bring them all the way to the horizon of his glory. Every time. Now, I don't think I committed heresy there. Uh, Y'all can write me emails later if I did. All that to say that it is okay that there is some mystery about how all this works. We can sort of get our brains around it a little and go, okay, I kind of get that enough. And that's okay. Because we can also say with biblical biblical conviction that God is never not sovereign. And then we have business to do as the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts of sin we need to repent of. As we said earlier in this series, there is nothing that can keep God from accomplishing his purposes. Let me quote uh, a writer, uh, Tim Mackey. He says, the fact that God can steer evil towards his purposes does not mean he engineered it. Pharaoh is responsible for his own evil, just as Joseph's brothers were. However, there is no force of human evil that can resist God's purpose to bring salvation and blessing to all nations. God's glory and his goodness are seen even here in the heart of Pharaoh. Let's continue. Chapter 14. I know that might be somewhat insufficient to deal with the sovereignty of God and the will of man, but... You're just going to have to be okay with that. Put it in a box. We'll talk about it later. Chapter 14. Let's continue. People are scared. Pharaoh and his army are now coming hard after Israel. The people cry out to the Lord and they say this to Moses. Is it because there are not enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here in the wilderness to die? I chuckle because this is one of those instances as I'm reading this week where I'm, I'm tempted to, if I was there, I'm like, guys, guys, were you here just now? Like, go back a page. Did you forget what God just did? Did you see that just now? I'm tempted to kind of be a little upset at these guys. Like, fellas, really? Why are you afraid? Do you really think that God would rescue you from slavery only to bring you out into the wilderness to kill you? Apparently, yes. That's exactly what they think. That's what they're, that's what they're saying. But before I can get too hard on these folks... Don't we just do the same thing? We, we, God works and shows us something good about himself, reminds us of his goodness, provides for us in some unforeseen way, and we take two steps away from that, and we go, I forgot what just happened. I, God, I'm in need again. And we act as if we've forgotten what he's done and said. And in part, I think it's because we fear the wrong thing. And I think that's what's being rooted out here in Israel. Look at verse 12. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's an interesting commentary. Here's what I hear them saying. Slavery is better than uncertainty. Slavery is better than not knowing and having to walk by faith. So the question I ask myself and us, where do we tend to choose slavery? Because walking by faith is too scary. Not so hard on them anymore when I ask that question of myself. Where do we tend to choose slavery because walking by faith is too scary? Moses' response Moses isn't always like the firm, confident leader. And I love this response of Moses. 
Fear not, he says. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He makes statements here. I love it. The Lord will fight for you. You need only wait. The Lord tells Moses, tell the people to go forward. Don't cry. Don't worry. Just go forward. Which would have been odd for them because forward was water. And then God told Moses, lift your staff over the sea. So here we get to the familiar Bible story. Moses lifts his staff and the sea starts to split. A strong wind comes down and actually pushes the water to the sides. And there is a wall of water on either side. The water piles up and the people begin to walk on dry ground. Hear me for a second. It's not just that the water split. It's that the ground at the bottom of the sea is dry. It's dry. Can you imagine for just a second again how crazy this would be? I mean, they've seen some crazy things to this point with the plagues in Egypt and the grasshoppers and the blood and the darkness and all of that. And here they're standing in front of the sea, the Red Sea, and it opens for them like a curtain. This must have been remarkable. And despite this probably insane thing that the Egyptian army is seeing, they've also seen some things. They're like, well, I guess this is just how it is. And they pursue God's people into the sea, the path in the sea that's been opened. Exodus tells us the Lord throws the Egyptian army into a panic. Horses and chariots all crowded. Mud getting built up under their the tires of their chariots. And someone apparently has the bright idea to say, I think this is a bad idea. We should go back the other way. And they attempt to flee. Lord tells Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. And as Moses stretched out his hand, the sea walls collapse. The sea returns to normal, burying the Egyptian army. Verse 28 says, not one of them remained. God said he would get glory over Pharaoh and over Egypt. And here he leaves their army destroyed and dead on the shore of the sea. God was bringing glory to himself by landing a final and decisive blow to those who had oppressed his people. He defeated his enemies. And not only is his glory on display in defeating his enemies, his goodness is on display in protecting his people from destruction, in providing a way for them through the sea. The sea in the Old Testament often represents danger and death and judgment. And here, rather than dying, God provides a way for his people to pass through death and live. And as chapter 12 closes, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that, the, excuse me, not chapter 12, chapter 14, so that the people feared the Lord, they were in awe of the Lord, and they believed in him and in his servant Moses. God's glory and his goodness are on full display in his presence with his people and in his power. And this all is fuel for praise. Look at chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Moses sings a song. I don't know if Moses is a good singer or not, but he sings a song here, and it is a really fantastic song. 
Moses sings, this is who God is, and this is what God has done. And let's praise him for who he is and what he's done. Some of the things Moses says, this is who my God is. He's my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. These are declaration statements of who God is. And what has God done? He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown horse and rider. He has thrown our enemies into the sea. And then verses 4 through 10 of chapter 15 is just kind of a retelling, verse by verse, of this story of how God has rescued them. How God is supreme over all their enemies. How God has sovereignly ruled and has led his people into safety. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. There's no one like you. There's no one who's majestic in holiness like you. There's no one who's awesome in glorious deeds like you. There's no one who does wonders like you. There is none. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then, and then Moses speaks not just of the trembling of Egypt, but of all the other nations who would dare to stand against the Lord and his people. The rest of the world will know who you are and what you have done. And they will fear you, but the Lord will plant his people Moses says, on his holy mountain, and he will reign forever and ever. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good praise song to me. And then it's followed up with this refrain. Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, takes a tambourine and leads all the women of Israel to dance before the Lord as they echo this song of Moses. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Together, Israel in one voice is saying, Behold, this is your God. And behold, this is what your God has done. Worship Him. And this is the foundation for the praise of God. Now, I'm just going to take a guess that you have not been chased by horses and chariots. That you probably haven't served as uh, enslaved peoples to a foreign government making bricks out of mud and straw. It's possible, but probably not. But the invitation from God to worship him is not confined to Israel. It's not confined only to the Exodus. The invitation from God to worship him is being made to us as well. We are being invited to praise God for both his glory, who he is, and his goodness, what he has done. And we, on this side of history, have a tangible, incarnate expression of God's glory and His goodness in Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. The glory and the goodness of the presence and power of Jesus is the source for our worship. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning... The beginning of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in verse 14, John says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. And I don't know if you've considered this. We talk about the, the miracles we see in Egypt, the, uh, the miraculous things of, of the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea parting and God going before his people in cloud and fire. But there is an immense cosmic reality in the incarnation. That is this. The glorious Lord who by his own mouth created all things that exist, condescends. He comes near and he wraps himself in human flesh and dwells among us. This is an amazing reality. And John just simply says, and we have seen his glory. <laughs> I love how that just is captured right there. And we have seen his glory. Glory is in the only Son from the Father. What's more, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, um, writes this down in the final chapter. This is Jesus speaking, Revelation 22. Same one who told us that, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word now speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus himself is displaying his own glory. And not only his glory, but also his goodness. Because this Jesus who came to us wrapped in human flesh, he becomes our good shepherd. He doesn't just merely tend to our needs. He actually lays down his own life so that the sheep might be saved. He promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. He tells us he will be with us always. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as a sign and a promise that he will descend just like he went. He will come back again for us to restore what has been broken and to make all things new. This is the Jesus we're being invited to worship. In his death, he has broken the power and curse of sin. And in his resurrection, he has broken the power of the grave. And this is where the Passover and the Red Sea work together. They're connected here. And how they both point to Jesus. Here, here's what I mean. If Jesus is the better and final Passover lamb, we talked about this last week, the curse of the firstborn, they were redeemed by the blood of a perfect lamb in the Passover. And how Jesus is saying, I am the final Passover lamb. So if Jesus, if his blood on the cross is the better and final blood on the doorposts, then Jesus' burial in the grave and his resurrection is the better and final passing through the Red Sea. That's what's happening here. Passover and passing through the sea are pointing to the cross of Jesus and an empty tomb. And in this, we are being invited to worship. And I think this is where it helps us. Here's where I think it helps us the most. You see, God is worthy of worship first and primarily because of who he is, that he is God, and second, because of what he has done. Don't misunderstand me. Praising God for all that he has done is good. We should overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving to God because he is incredibly faithful. He gives remarkably good gifts to his children, and his mercy towards us is so undeserved and so necessary. 
We should praise Him for His salvation. We should praise Him for His work in our lives, for His protection and His provision. I'm not minimizing any of that. But I wanted us to see that we are invited to worship God primarily and first because of who He is. That He is God. And here's why this is important. Because we've seen it here in Exodus, and we see it again as we continue to follow God's people through this journey in the wilderness, that no matter our circumstances, God doesn't change. He doesn't change. And so if God's character is unchanging, then we can be sure that everything He does is always then for good, even when we can't see it. So when the Lord opens the sea and allows us to walk through stuff that should kill us, we come out the other side and we say, praise His name. And when the sea and the floods bury us and we don't walk out the other side, because God doesn't change, we can lift our hands and say, praise His name. Because we have seen the glory of Jesus and so we trust in the goodness of Jesus. So as God is calling His people to worship, Let me echo that call of worship to us. Let us worship our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for His glory and for His goodness. Let us worship our God together because He is worthy of it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we confess we are pretty easily Our eyes are pretty easily pulled downward. And you are so gracious. Knowing our weakness to meet us there. To pull us up. To remind us of your goodness and your grace. And then do what's necessary to relieve our distress. I pray that we would see you for who you are as God. And that would fuel our ability in our weakness to also see you as good. And that this would well up in our hearts, this gratitude, this thanksgiving. That whether we're walking on dry land through things that should bury us or we are feeling just buried. That you don't change and because you don't, we can praise you for who you are. And trust you, even when we don't see all that you're doing. That you are working for good and for your glory. Would you remind us, even as we come to the table, that what we see as bread and juice comes directly from a, a, a Roman cross and a, and a tomb. And yet we celebrate in communion... Not just the cross, but that the cross is empty. Not just the reality of the tomb, but that you put death to death by death, that we might have life. So even as we come to the communion table, that our hearts would well with gratitude for the way in which you've shown your goodness and your glory in Jesus. Help your people to worship you in the midst of joy and in the midst of sorrow. Help us see you as good and to worship you for you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.